Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Just wait until we see all of the parlor videos from social media of the people who attended his rally who were going to the Capitol and saying that the president told us to storm the Capitol. They understood what he was trying to say. I don't discount the fact that he may be convicted this time, and I hope he will be. But I think the case is equally important to make to the American people that if not disqualified, he will continue to pose a danger to the republic. My guests this week are Dan Goldman and Congressman Adam Schiff. Both were critical figures in the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Dan is lead counsel for the House Democrats, and Schiff, of course, as lead House impeachment manager. Dan is a trial attorney and legal analyst. Before serving on the Hill, he worked for me as a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. Congressman Schiff has represented Los Angeles and the House since 2001. He currently serves as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. You may recall that I spoke with Dan just about a year ago when Trump was impeached for the first time. Well, folks, here we go again. The former president has been impeached by the House for inciting a deadly insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Today, I speak with Goldman and Schiff about what to expect from next week's Senate impeachment trial. We've also got a special treat for those of you who want to follow the proceedings more closely next week, but can't watch the long hours in the Senate every day. Our very own Ellie Honig, a former federal and state prosecutor, is hosting a new cafe show, Third Degree. Each day of the impeachment trial, Ellie will brief you on everything you need to know, what just happened and what to watch in 10 minutes or less. He'll watch it all so you don't have to. To listen and subscribe for free, just search Third Degree with Ellie Honig wherever you get your podcasts. That's coming up. Stay tuned. It's time for some listener questions. This question comes in an email from Sadie, who asks, What do you make of the arguments made in the Trump team's impeachment brief? Are they as bad as they seem? Well, they're not great. Thanks for your question, Sadie. To begin with, as, as maybe you heard, the very first line of the brief, and it's not really in the form of a brief, but the very first line in this document submitted to the Congress has a misspelling of the word united, as in United States. It's spelled unites. Maybe that's wishful thinking about what will happen with respect to the country. So you may recall also that Donald Trump has had some difficulty getting lawyers to represent him in connection with the impeachment trial. The lawyers who represented him the last time around are nowhere to be found. 
a group of lawyers, numbering up to about five, decided to abandon ship last weekend because, according to reports, they didn't agree with Donald Trump's approach to the defense. So at the very last minute, he got two lawyers who are, who are real lawyers who have had careers that have been somewhat impressive, Bruce Castor and David Schoen. They didn't have a lot of time to put their arguments together. The document is about 14 pages. And if you consider that much of it is quoting from the article of impeachment and then providing responses to that article, it's substantially less than 14 pages. So brevity may be the soul of wit, but when you're talking about something as serious as this, they might have done a better job of elaborating their positions, which perhaps they didn't have time to do. They essentially make two arguments. One, that an impeachment trial can only be had when you have a sitting president who is a subject of the article or articles of impeachment. And second, that Donald Trump had an absolute First Amendment right to say the things he said on January 6th and in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th, and to hold him accountable in connection with an article of impeachment based on what he said is a threat to passionate political speech everywhere. Now, with respect to the first argument, we've talked about this ad nauseum. The Constitution, I think, the vast majority of legal experts agree, allows for a trial even if the officer, president or otherwise, has left office. Because there's this provision in the Constitution that talks about disqualification. And obviously, if you have an impeachment and then you have removal, by definition, that officer will be gone and a vote on disqualification, if it could only happen with respect to a sitting officer, wouldn't be possible. So that doesn't make any sense. And second, with respect to this case, the actual impeachment by the House occurred while Donald Trump was in office. So there's no argument that that impeachment was improper. And then the Constitution makes very clear that, quote, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. It doesn't say all impeachments of people who are still sitting in office or not sitting in office. The impeachment was valid. It happened with respect to a sitting president. Now the Senate shall have the sole power. And by the way, that's kind of moot as a practical matter because we already had a vote in the Senate. 55-45. 55 senators, including five Republicans, basically voted in favor of the constitutionality of proceeding on the Senate impeachment trial notwithstanding this argument that the minority of Senators 45 made in the other direction. With respect to the free speech argument, I think it's not well taken, given the kind of speech that Donald Trump engaged in. It wasn't just passionate political speech. If you read the 80-page, much better written, much more elegant, much more forceful brief filed by the House managers, you will see how they marshal the facts in favor of the conclusion that what Donald Trump was talking about was not simple protest, was not just expressing an opinion about the election, which might be protected but rather calling people to arms, calling people to action, inciting them to do what they did on January 6th. Anyway, we'll see soon enough if the arguments about the First Amendment or the procedural argument moves any senators one way or the other. This question comes in an email from John, who asks, The Washington Post reported that Manhattan DA Cy Vance is considering prosecuting Steve Bannon following Trump's pardon. Do you think Vance has a case here? Is there any question over whether he has jurisdiction? That's a great question. I was, I was pleased to see that article because, as you may recall, following the pardon, I said quite clearly that given the nature of the fraud that was alleged against Steve Bannon and three others, it would probably be the case that many jurisdictions, including local DA's offices, would be able to bring a criminal case against Steve Bannon on the same facts. Double jeopardy almost certainly doesn't apply because he was merely charged and that charge will be dismissed, I'm assuming pretty shortly, given the pardon. And remember what the charge was. It was a fraud allegation against Steve Bannon and his co-defendants on the ground that they collected money from people in favor of an organization that would attempt to build a wall or give funding to build a wall at the southern border. And in trying to collect those contributions from people who were supporters of the wall and of Donald Trump, they made representations 
that appear to have been false, that they wouldn't profit in any way, they wouldn't line their pockets in any way from those contributions. And the allegation is that Steve Bannon did to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, just like his co-defendants. That's a garden variety fraud. There's nothing special about the federal government bringing that kind of a case versus a DA's office. I think Cy Vance will have an easier time if the Southern District of New York shares its information, shares the, the fruits of its investigation. If there's grand jury material involved, they'll have to get a court order. I think that's pretty pro forma in a case in these circumstances. On your question of whether or not he has jurisdiction, I think it's very, very, very likely, if not an almost certainty. There were victims all over the country. I would imagine there were victims in Manhattan. Also because the allegations concern financial transactions, either wiring of funds or cashing of checks or you know, other kinds of things that, that occur with respect to banks, much of the financial industry is located in Manhattan. And chances are that you have both victims and financial transactions taking place at some point in Manhattan. And so my expectation would be that Cy Vance will bring such a case. This question comes in an email from Brigitte, who asks, did you catch Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's speech in court this week? The answer is yes, I did. And if you haven't, it's really worth a listen. Obviously, if you can learn Russian and listen in Russian, that'd be ideal, but there's translation available on the internet. Remember, Alexei Navalny is the person who almost certainly was ordered poisoned, assassinated by Vladimir Putin for having the temerity to question his leadership and to be in the opposition. After he was poisoned and came within an inch of losing his life, he got treatment outside of Russia. And then when a warrant was issued for his arrest, he came back to Russia. And someone asked me recently, why do you do that? Why do you go back to a place where the leader tried to kill you and you probably will lose your life if you go back? And the answer is because he has more bravery and courage than almost anyone on the planet. And that's how you start a movement. And that's how you get people to follow you. And, and at this hearing this week, where he was sentenced to significant jail time, not for any crime that I think rational, reasonable people would recognize, he had the opportunity to address the court and address Vladimir Putin directly. And he did so in extraordinary fashion. He spoke not only seriously, but also humorously and sarcastically about what had transpired and what this moment means. Here's a portion of what he said. The explanation is one man's hatred and fear, one man hiding in a bunker. That one man, of course, Vladimir Putin. I mortally offended him by surviving. I survived thanks to good people, thanks to pilots and doctors. And then I committed an even more serious offense. I didn't run and hide. Then something truly terrifying happened. I participated in the investigation of my own poisoning. And we proved, in fact, that Putin, using Russia's Federal Security Service, was responsible for this attempted murder. And that's driving this thieving little man in his bunker out of his mind. He's simply going insane as a result. There's no popularity ratings, no massive support. There's none of that. Because it turns out that dealing with a political opponent who has no access to television and no political party merely requires trying to kill him with a chemical weapon. So of course, he's losing his mind over this because everyone was convinced that he's just a bureaucrat who was accidentally appointed to his position. He's never participated in any debates or campaigned in an election. Murder is the only way he knows how to fight. He'll go down in history as nothing but a poisoner. We all remember Alexander the Liberator and Yaroslav the Wise. Well, now we'll have Vladimir the Underpants Poisoner. I'm standing here, guarded by the police, and the National Guard is out there with half of Moscow cordoned off. All this because that small man in a bunker is losing his mind. He's losing his mind because we proved and demonstrated 
that he isn't buried in geopolitics. He's busy holding meetings where he decides how to steal politicians' underpants and smear them with chemical weapons to try to kill them. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Joining me this week are Dan Goldman and Congressman Adam Schiff. Both of them had crucial roles in the first impeachment trial of former President Trump. Now, on the eve of an unprecedented second Senate impeachment trial, I speak with both of them about what's to come. Congressman Adam Schiff and civilian Dan Goldman, thanks again for coming back on the show. Great to be with you. Yeah, my pleasure. It's it's a little bit deja vu all over again, and I can think of no two better humans in the country to sort of break down, explain to us and to listeners what's going on with the upcoming Senate impeachment trial, trial number two for Donald J. Trump. But before we do that, just one housekeeping matter, and I want to let both of you have an opportunity to address this very important issue. Dan, you may remember that you were on the show last February, and uh, once upon a time, we worked together. You, you worked for me when I was a U.S. attorney, and I asked you the question, what was it like to work for the second best boss you've ever had, <laughs> referring to your, to your co-guest, Chairman Schiff, and you did not dispute my characterization. You said it was a great experience, but nothing is like working for you, Preet, of course. Dan, do you want to revise and extend your remarks? And Congressman Schiff, would you like to say something to Dan about that? I would just like to say that I am totally outraged 
I can't <laughs> believe what you're saying, and uh, you must be misquoting him, I'm sure. Let's go to the videotape. <laughs> I have the transcript right. All right, so kidding aside. Well, let me just say one thing, Preet, because you know this is a special opportunity for me to be on a podcast with my two former bosses. And so before we go, I, I do want, before we move on, I do want the viewers to make sure they understand that every, the, the, the most important lesson that I learned from each of you, and that is, Preet, do you have your Diet Coke? And Adam, <laughs> do you have your iced tea? <laughs> I do. I do have my Diet Coke right here. And I've got my iced tea, actually. It's right in front of me. See, what a, what a good employee I am. Although I don't have a Diet Coke button of the sort that uh, I understand Joe Biden removed from the Oval Office. That's next for you. Quick trivia question before we get to the substance. Can either of you remind the public how many years ago the last impeachment trial was? <laughs> you know, it's uh, really hard, I think, for both of us to come to grips with the fact that it was uh, exactly a year ago. And when uh, when I watched the managers uh, proceed through Statuary Hall, uh, it, it felt like I was watching time-lapse photography, that I was somehow right. a spectator to, to my own events. But uh, I looked and said, no, that's a completely different team. But uh, it, it is so remarkable uh, that here we are again, so soon after the last impeachment, uh, facing another trial, but also having to uh, endure uh, even more egregious presidential abuses in the interim. Yeah, that's what I, I, my takeaway is, as something that you often say, Adam, I'm shocked, but not surprised. And I think you in particular did a fabulous job at the last Senate trial warning everyone about what might happen if there were no consequences for Donald Trump's abuse of power. And what we have seen in the subsequent year I, I certainly was beyond, I think, anything I imagined, although I certainly expected things to get worse, not better. But, you know, he went from trying to cheat in an election, which he was impeached for last time, to trying to steal an election, which is what he's now been impeached for and is facing trial again. And we're left once again to consider whether there will be consequences, at least you know, through impeachment for his actions. When you think back, both of you, on how the trial was conducted and the arguments that were made, and I think you both did an excellent job, and I've said that publicly repeatedly, is there anything, when you think about the current impeachment issue, anything that you might have said or argued differently that you think could have made any difference at all? Well, I, you know, I think... I think not. Uh, and you can already get the sense uh, in the procedural vote uh, to uh, find that you can't constitutionally try a former president, uh, just how predisposed these senators are to one result or another. Um, on, on the merits of that motion, I think the history, the plain text of the Constitution and common sense all dictate that, of course, you can try someone even after they're uh, out of office. After all, uh, it would be intolerable to have a situation where a president uh, interferes with the peaceful transfer of power, and that will always come at the end of a president's term. And if they're successful, they're president for life. And if they fail, there's no repercussion. That cannot be uh, what the Constitution requires. That would be uh, would make the Constitution a suicide pact. 
But the the fact that uh, even before the trial begins and even before arguments are heard on constitutionality, you already have 45 senators deciding that they want to find an easy out. It was, I think, even more overwhelming the case a year ago that the senators were determined not to hear witnesses, not to uh, put themselves in the difficult position of actually having to weigh the evidence fully. So I'm not sure that there's much we could have done to alter the result. I do think that our mission then, and this is part of the mission now, is uh, we realized that we were trying the case to two juries, the, the, the jury that is the Senate and the jury that is the American people. Uh, and while the jury that is the Senate uh, was so heavily uh, biased before we entered the chamber, there were at least uh, you know several tens of millions of Americans um, who had not made up their mind. And it was to them that we needed to speak and to point out the danger, the basic immorality of this president, the the risk to the country going forward. And, and in that, I think we were successful. And in that, I think that this new incredible team of managers will also be successful. I don't discount the fact that he may be convicted this time, and I hope he will be. But I think the case is equally important to make to the American people that if not disqualified, he will continue to pose a danger to the republic. Dan, can I ask you a a follow-up legal question? Does it make a difference to the argument about the constitutionality of the trial that the actual impeachment itself was successfully accomplished while Donald Trump was president? In other words, does that just make the argument stronger? And would it or would it be different if President Trump were out of office before impeachment were even tried in the House? I think it makes it a lot stronger. And the equivalent is something that that obviously you and, and your listeners would understand, which is an indictment. And the statute of limitations on criminal cases requires only that there be an indictment prior to its expiration, not that there be an indictment and a trial prior to the expiration of the statute of limitations. And if the impeachment in the House is the equivalent of an indictment for the purposes of the Constitution, then he was indicted, so to speak, prior to the expiration of his term. Whether the trial comes after he leaves is really of no moment uh, in this argument. I think you could have an impeachment after uh, someone is removed from office or has left office for other reasons. I think that's very important to, to be able to do. But there's no question that it makes it a lot stronger that he was impeached prior to office. And just think about the perverse consequences of someone saying, as as Adam pointed out, that well, you, you could any peaceful transfer of power that is interfered with would have no consequences. That, of course, would happen at the end. But you could also imagine a situation where someone uh, just resigns uh, right before the conviction vote. He sees the writing on the wall and he says, you know what, I'm going to resign. I'm not going to have the conviction. Are you then to tell me that because he resigned that the senators could not vote on conviction and could not vote on disqualification, that also makes no sense. I was just going to add, Preet, uh, and I completely agree with Dan, um, but one other practical uh, consequence of the impeachment taking place in the House before the president left office is it would be intolerable to have a situation where a Senate leader like Mitch McConnell could say, I'm not going to take up the impeachment while the president is in office. And then after the president leaves office, say, I can't take up the impeachment now because the president has left office. 
No oh, you mean, one. You mean like what he did? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. What he's trying to do anyway. Uh, but uh, no one Senate leader uh, should have the constitutional power to thwart an impeachment. I think our founders recognized that a president can commit impeachable conduct at any point in their term, uh, and uh, and nothing in the logic of the Constitution or its text would compel such a destructive and disastrous result as a a Senate leader who could say, I'm not going to take it up now, and I can't take it up later. So then I guess people have this question about the speed with which impeachment took place in the House. The insurrection was on Wednesday, January 6th. The impeachment happened a week later. Is it your view that it went that quickly because of how outraged people were, because of this legal implication that we've been talking about, you know, wanting to get it done before the president left office, a combination of those things? Why, Why the speed? If, if it's the case, as you both say, that as a legal matter, the impeachment could have happened even after Trump left office. Well, I think that the, the real motivation for moving with alacrity uh, was that every day the president remained in office, he continued to be a danger to the republic. Uh, and so there was a real sense that we cannot leave him in office a day longer. But also, this was a unique circumstance in which the members of the House and Senate were uh, first-hand witnesses to the misconduct. Uh, we were all uh, victim to the insurrection. Uh, and so the case was a very public case, is a very public case. Uh, that allowed us to move quickly uh, and without having to do an extensive investigation. But I would add, Preet, that there was a lot of value that perhaps is still in the dark to moving so quickly because it was a relatively quiet last two weeks of the presidency. and In part because he got his Twitter taken away. Well, he got his Twitter taken away. But there also was this pending impeachment and potential trial. And I think that that was served as a deterrent factor against him going even further than what he might go, recognizing that the senators are going to have to deal with this issue beyond uh, January 20th. And that's also another reason, of course, why it's so important to have this impeachment trial is deterrence, not necessarily for Donald Trump, but to anyone else who would consider similar actions in the future. There needs to be a marker laid down that says, if you do this, you will be impeached removed and disqualified from office. So at least we are setting some of the guardrails around what an abuse of power is for future presidents or elected officials. Do either of you think it had a real regulating or chilling effect on Trump's conduct? For example, do you think it had an effect on the pardons that he chose to give, uh, including, as far as we know, no self-pardon, no pardon for members of his family, because he was worried about a potential vote in the Senate and that he was maybe um, deterred, as you say, Dan. I do think so. I, I think there would have been pardons uh, for some of the rioters. I think there may have been pardons for his family members, um, you know, pr- sort of preemptive pardons. I, I think there we know we can imagine no bounds that he would have gone to abuse the power of his office. But there were rumblings, you know, in the out there that he was somewhat, you know, circumspect about doing some of these more outlandish or egregious things because of the pending impeachment. And I would agree. I think that uh, if he had any 
lawyers worth their salt in the White House, uh, they were undoubtedly telling him as he was staring down the barrel of another impeachment that any uh, action he took to inflame uh, senators further would increase the chances of his conviction. I find it inexplicable that he didn't give a whole host of pardons to family, maybe even himself, for any other reason. And, you know, I, I think that if he's acquitted again, uh, there is the risk, of course, that he learn exactly the wrong lesson from that. Uh, and one of the things that made me a convert to the first impeachment, and for a long time, as we were doing the Russia investigation and Mueller was doing his work, I was resisting calls to impeach the president. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we finished our investigation. We knew all the facts. But what persuaded me uh, to move uh, along the impeachment track was, you know, one, the discovery of new and more egregious conduct in his effort to get Ukraine to help him cheat and the election by withholding hundreds of millions in military aid from that country. But the fact that he engaged in that conduct the day after Bob Mueller testified, that he was back on the phone this time with Zelensky trying to cheat, uh, trying to enlist another foreign power to help him again, um, he had clearly learned the lesson that escaping accountability the first time was empowering and uh, having escaped accountability the second time in the impeachment, he would go on to do new and even worse things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I continue to uh, worry that if he escapes accountability in this impeachment now, uh, he will feel uh, once again at liberty to engage in new and more destructive conduct. In just the way that we warned during the last trial that if he was left in office, we could expect him to try to cheat again. Um, if he's not disqualified from office, we can expect that in four years, he may very well try to cheat uh, in new and more destructive ways. So both of you have mentioned issues that I think bring out the tension in the following two things. One, you want to proceed with you know all deliberate speed and get resolution. And maybe the clock was ticking a little bit for both political and legal reasons with the president's exit from office and also the danger he posed every day he remained in office. But on the other hand, balanced against that, is the need you have in any kind of investigative proceeding to get as much evidence as possible, to interview as many people as possible, to get as many documents as possible. I mean, both of you and your teams got criticized for moving so fast the last time around, and that was over the period of weeks and, and a few months. And there were staff-run depositions and interviews, and then there were proceedings uh, held in, in, the, in the public forum in the House. Here, do you think there's something lost, both in the House proceeding and also in the upcoming trial, by not having the opportunity to do as many interviews to find out uh, to the greatest extent possible how much involvement the president's campaign may have had in setting up the January 6th rally, calls that the president made to various people, what was in his mind, et cetera, et cetera. How do you, how do you balance those two things against each other going forward? I guess I would balance it in this way. Uh, at some point during the, the last trial, I remember uh, Lamar Alexander, I think it was, going on one of the Sunday shows uh, and saying something along the lines uh, uh, in an effort to defend his vote against hearing witnesses, something along the lines of the House has already proved its case five different ways. Do we need to really need them to prove it six different ways? And I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, I think the same situation is, is present today, which is the House managers can prove this case five different ways. If we took additional time to do additional investigation, maybe we could prove it six, six different ways. But would it matter to the senators that you proved it six different ways uh, instead of five? Um, there's, uh, you know, I think undoubtedly the prospect of, of further evidence uh, with the passage of time. 
Were there people, for example, warning the president, Mr. President, there are bad people coming to this rally, violent people. You should not go. Uh, you should not speak to that crowd. And if you do, you darn well need to be very careful about what you say, or you're going to incite an attack on the Capitol. Um, was he given warnings of that nature? You know, what are the circumstances around the deployment of the Guard or non-deployment of the Guard? There, There is uh, certainly more that can be learned with the passage of time. But uh, you have to ask, you know, is it is it worth the time um, that the, the trial would, would uh, hang over the country to pursue that additional evidence when you have recordings of the president on the phone with the secretary of state uh, in Georgia? I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. I mean, the evidence is so abundant, so graphic. Uh, his speech at the at the mall that day so public that you really have to evaluate the additional increment of evidence you would get over time. Is it worth the time it would take? And I think the answer is probably no. And Preet, I would just analogize this to what you and I had so much familiarity with, and, and Adam as well in his prior career, as prosecutors versus an impeachment process. I think for an impeachment process and an impeachment trial, you don't need every detail that you would need in a criminal case. And for example, in a criminal case, because of the high standard of mens rea, you need to understand what the president's state of mind. If he were to be charged for any of his conduct, I think you would want, whether you need to or not is a different question, but you would want to have a sense of what he knew about the public plans by his supporters and the protesters to storm the Capitol that preceded January 6th, and it was out there in the public. If you'd want to understand how much he knew about that, you'd want to have that information about what happened in, in much greater detail uh, after the riots started and he's watching on TV and who, what did he say and who called and what did he say about the National Guard and why did Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, say it took two hours for his National Guard to get authorization to come in? You would want all of that for a criminal case. But in an impeachment case, and, you know, I, I treated, and I think Adam and I both really approached the last impeachment investigation as we would have approached a criminal prosecution or criminal investigation. I, I think in the end, and for the reasons that Adam said about Lamar Alexander and saying we proved our case, but we'll leave it to the voters, I think in the end, impeachment is, is a different animal. And the well, and part of the different animal because it's still confusing as to what the animal is. I mean, you made a reference to the high burden of proof, and everyone knows to be convicted of a crime, there are elements that are set out. You have to prove each of them beyond a reasonable doubt. You know what the standard is. It's different from a civil standard, preponderance of the evidence. Here, there are no elements. There are no instructions to the jury, meaning this, the one hundred senators. And to this day, I don't think anybody can actually explain what the standard of proof is. Can you? Isn't it just whatever whatever in each individual senator thinks is the is the level of proof required to earn that particular senator's vote, or what a high crime and a high crime is? <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's and, very vague, gentlemen. And, and I do think that you know there were Republican senators the last time who explained their vote for acquittal to say that they don't they didn't think that the Ukraine conduct 
and they would, of course, narrow the focus just to the phone call, but that they don't, I, I think, improperly narrow it. But they didn't think that rose to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. And I think to Adam's point, there's no question that what the president did from November 3rd through January 6th was a high crime and that it is an impeachable conduct. So I don't expect that anyone who votes to acquit the president will use that justification here. And I think they know that. And that's why they're focusing so much on this uh, flimsy legal constitutional rationale that you can't have a trial after someone is removed because they can't use the same rationale they used last time. Well, if I might ask the congressman uh, and and push on this a little bit so, so members of the public understand the argument. So the article of impeachment is about incitement to insurrection. And Donald Trump certainly, you know, is incendiary and urged people to march to the Capitol, said, I'm coming with you. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you and I'm going to be watching. That was a lie. He didn't go with them. But it is true. And presumably his lawyers, if he ever secures them, will make some of these points beyond the procedural points. Donald Trump did not say invade the Capitol. Donald Trump did not say break windows. Donald Trump did not say engage in violence. Donald Trump did not say insurrection. He did not say riot. He didn't say any of those things. Does that make a difference? And if the impeachment lawyers on behalf of Donald Trump make that argument in fuller form than I just made it, what's the rebuttal to that? I think the rebuttal to that, uh, and they, they may very well make that argument. Um, the rebuttal to that is you look at the, the course of the president's conduct um, leading up to the insurrection, during the insurrection, and what you see is a president pushing out uh, endless lies about the election being rigged. Uh, essentially laying the foundation for millions of Americans to discredit their own country's elections, their own democracy. You have that conduct uh, with the president trying to get the Georgia Secretary of State uh, to magically find votes that don't exist. You have all the uh, uh, the stop the steal um, falsehoods being propagated before that rally on the Mall. You have his incendiary comments during that speech on the mall. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. We will stop the steal. We will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. And I think you can demonstrate quite easily that uh, the foreseeable consequence of what he was doing was that attack uh, on the Capitol. Uh, and that range of conduct uh, is an, an extraordinary abuse of the, the power of the presidency, uh, that it is uh, an unprecedented effort to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power, um, that here he was telling this mob, essentially, that they were going to have to fight uh, or they were going to lose their country. And that uh, this was their one opportunity uh, because he had tried everything else, failed in the courts and failed with the local electors and failed to to get the secretary of state in places like Georgia to cheat. This was their one chance. And Mike Pence better do the right thing. And so I think that the case is a very powerful one, that uh, what that mob did was the foreseeable consequence of what Donald Trump did. And as Dan was pointing out, this isn't a criminal case like uh, you would have uh, with, with a, a very high burden of proof to a jury. The ultimate uh, test here is, is this conduct in office compatible 
with the, the, the oath to uphold the Constitution and faithfully execute the laws. And I don't see how anyone can conclude that that conduct that resulted in that attack on the Capitol is consistent with his oath, with his duties, with his presidential powers. But I, I, you know, I fully expect you can find a lawyer to argue anything, and they will find a lawyer to make the contrary argument. If uh, the, the last four years have shown us anything, it is that, that Donald Trump will find people to carry his water, no matter how dirty that water may be. Yeah. And if I could just add a couple of th- additional considerations. One is, and, and I'm sure the impeachment managers will, will, gra- will grab this video, Throughout the last four years, Donald Trump has quite overtly referenced physical violence and encouraged physical violence, and particularly at his rallies. So he has a curated macho reputation as being a tough guy who supports violence. I mean, Charlottesville, you know, was one example where he somewhat endorsed the violence by the the neo-Nazis, and there are other times where there were people um, getting protesters at his own rallies who he would refer to violence. I think that's relevant to what the impression of the protesters was and what their interpretation of the words is. The second thing, Preet, which you, I know, had experience with and would certainly push forward in a criminal trial is he talks like a mob boss. He is not going to use those words you referenced, like go you, you know, execute an insurrection, go riot, go storm the Capitol. He, he never would actually say those words, just like a mob boss would not say, go kill that person. The mob boss would say, you know, can you please take care of this? Take care of him, right. Exactly. <laughs> take and, care and, of it. And that's, that's when he says, go fight. Or, you know, if, they, if Mike Pence doesn't do the right thing, bad things will happen. That's violent talk. Everyone understands that. And if you have any question as to whether they understood it or not, just wait until we see all of the parlor videos from social media of the people who attended his rally who were going to the Capitol and saying that the president told us to storm the Capitol. They understood what he was trying to say. We came at his invitation. Look, that's why I think connected to all of this, and I think the congressman mentioned this earlier, I think very powerful evidence as to the president's state of mind at the rally earlier in the day is a reaction he reportedly had when he saw the violence taking place. He did not condemn it. Absolutely. Immediately. He didn't tell them to stop. According to the reporting, he was kind of joyful about it. That tells you a lot about what was foreseeable, what he intended, and how he felt about the use of violence. I think any normal person, responsible person in authority, would have been mortified and horrified that somehow a band of supporters who he hypothetically was hoping would be peaceful turned into marauding, beating, violent mob. And there's no evidence that he thought that. I think that all in combination is, is of course, very important. I think you're absolutely right. Some of the most powerful evidence of what he intended, what he hoped, what he was pleased with is his reaction while that violence was going on. And when you consider the, the duties of his office, um, the fact that he did nothing to stop it while it was happening, uh, and if anything, seemed to enjoy uh, what was going on uh, is very powerful proof that this was what uh, what he intended, uh, what, he, what he foresaw, yeah. uh, and uh, and was gratified by the result. He said, "I love you." He said, "I love you" to these people. Yeah. In addition to saying the other things that his staffers got him to say, we have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. That was in his 
speech yeah. that he was coaxed and and basically coerced into do, giving in order to stop them from storming the Capitol. He said, "We love you." I mean, it was it was absurd. We'll be right back to my interview with Dan Goldman and Adam Schiff after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. So I, I take it from both of you that the conduct that's at the heart of the second impeachment is worse and more dangerous and more harmful than the conduct at the heart of the first impeachment. And Dan will be familiar with my doing this, and not everybody <laughs> likes to answer this question. But if you were to say on the spectrum of impeachment were the uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, the Ukraine affair with respect to Donald Trump was, say, a six on a scale of one to 10. Where do you place incitement to insurrection? Well, um, I, I, I wouldn't give the Ukraine misconduct a six. Uh, well, so I'm, just, I'm doing that for, for, for you know, comparison <laughs> purposes. Where would you put Ukraine and where would you put this? I just want to remind people, because it has been a year, and a year is a hell of a long time during the Trump era, what was involved in the Ukraine misconduct? This was a president who withheld uh, $400 million in military assistance to an ally that was at war with Russia and losing people every week in that war uh, to coerce them uh, to help him cheat in the election by smearing Joe Biden. You know, that's a pretty high bar that we start out with to compare the insurrection. But the insurrection clears that, and I think it clears it by a mile. It made this president the first in history to seek to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power. He engaged in conduct that we see from despots around the world. And, you know, tragically, we are seeing uh, mirrored in Myanmar now uh, as they are relying on the same bogus claims of election fraud that Donald Trump uh, was propagating. Uh, so it's hard for me to see the the incitement of this insurrection as, as anything but a, a 10 out of 10 uh, in the scale of uh, egregious uh, abuse of power wherever you might put the Ukraine misconduct on that scale. Dan, do you agree? I, I do. I can't. I'm sitting here trying to sort of imagine, you know, a, a more serious crime than trying to overturn a lawful election in our democratic system of government. And I, I can't really. I with mean, violence, with violence. Yeah, with, well, with violence, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I just, I just think from the basic premise that, you know, the most fundamental aspect of our system of government is voting and our free and fair elections and the fact that everybody is accountable to the public. And that has been at the very core of our system of government for 250 years. And it is what makes us different and has separated us from everything. And for Donald Trump, you know, to dress up his claims, you know, with legal claims, which quickly fell, fell away, and then just to completely and outrightly try to steal the election, the call to Raffensperger, the what was going on with the attempted coup within DOJ to interfere with the 
the Georgia thing. And, and I'm sure there's a lot more that we don't know about. Um, but that just goes, I mean, that really, really strikes at the heart. Ukraine does too. But I think there's a difference in trying to cheat in the election and to steal an election. And ultimately, that's, you know, it's a, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a fine line here. But Yeah, but look, if you imagine, if you go, in, if you go to the thought experiment and think about what was intended and what could have happened with respect to the, the heart of the second impeachment, the insurrection on January 6th, you're talking about dead congressmen, right? You're talking about, you know, potentially bombs in the Capitol. Much, much worse than actually happened. And that's just, on any scale, as horrifying a thing you can imagine for Americans to be doing in this country and for it to be fomented and incited by the sitting president of the United States is almost unthinkable. I completely agree. You know, Trump once proudly boasted, as we know, that he could shoot somebody in the middle of the street and they would still, he would still not lose his supporters. Yeah. Um, you know, what he did on January 6th uh, resulted in the deaths of, of several people, including Capitol Police officers, one who was killed that day, two others who took their lives not long thereafter. And so we, we did see a loss of life. And in the course of an effort to, as Dan is pointing out, overturn an election um, and maintain himself in power uh, when he had clearly lost. And it is really difficult to contemplate a, an injury to the Constitution more profound than that one. I know you both will remember Fiona Hill, the witness in the first impeachment, uh, who was so brilliant and, and so um, impressive. She wrote, I thought, a great article, and, and she has studied obviously coups and and all sorts of uh, different types of uh, insurrections. And, and she said this was a self-coup, similar to what happened in Venezuela, but that, that just because it failed does not mean that it was not a coup. It was a coup attempt. Um, we stood our ground as a country uh, and Congress did by going back in and making sure that notwithstanding the trauma of that day, they stayed up until two o'clock in the morning in order to certify that election and make sure that our democracy continued apace. But that's what this was. It was a coup attempt and we should not mince words about it. You know, there's a question that I've gotten from some folks, including uh, from a federal district court judge, Dan, that, that you and I both know, but I won't, I won't mention her name here. And, and the question is, why the one article? Would there have been some argument in favor of having more than one article, maybe even just two articles, and split off the whole business with the call to the Secretary of State in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, for among other reasons, to give jurors a choice, split their verdict, be able to bring in other, other evidence? Do you have a thought about the, what the thinking was there? I'm going to jump in here, and I don't know if, if Adam has thoughts about this, but I, I've been getting this question a lot, and... Um, I'm not surprised that it comes from a district judge um, because I think lawyers have a really difficult time getting our minds around a Senate trial for related to impeachment. But the more that we try to equate it to a courtroom trial, I think the further afield we get. It's just not like the trials that we are used to. And I've now been through it. And that's one of my big yeah, it's not at all. lessons that I learned is 
I thought, you know, all right, this is a trial. I'm used to trials. We can do this. We can prepare for this. And, you know, part of what our presentation was last time was based on, you know, what we would do in a closing argument in terms of the audiovisual display, et cetera, in a, in a normal, normal trial. But there's no judge. There's no judge in this trial. And it doesn't matter if it's Chief Justice Roberts or Patrick Leahy. Chief Justice Roberts did not make a single dispositive decision in the last trial. And that's because the senators are the judge and they are the jury and they make the rules and they And in this case, also the, vi- also the victims and also some subset, arguably co-conspirators. Uh, maybe. And, and so you know what? You, you have multiple grounds to strike for cause every single senator if this was a real trial. Of course. And no one will be stricken. And that's just not the way that it's going to work. There, as you say, there are no elements of the offense that you can go down. And for that reason, I frankly don't really think the text of the article or whether it's one, two, or three really matters that much. At the end of the day, the charge is, is a serious charge and it is provable and there will be evidence to prove it. But it includes the language about the Raffensperger stuff. And it's gonna, there's, there's also no one there to say, oh, no, you can't talk about you know, something from three years ago. That's not admissible here. Everything is admissible. There are no rules of evidence. It's basically, do you think this conduct is so egregious that I cannot withstand uh, constitution, uh, constitutional scrutiny? But ultimately, it's a political decision. And the senators are going to decide where the winds are blowing politically. And that's what's going to dictate the outcome. Right. You know, w- one thing that just occurred to me as you were speaking was, and then I want to turn it over to the congressman, one thing that cannot happen at the Senate trial in any way that I can think of, and is always a risk at every trial that, that all three of us have overseen or seen or, or participated in ourselves, there's nothing that can precipitate a mistrial, right? No matter what a senator does or says or introduces, there's no mistrial. That's kind of interesting too. Chairman Schiff? You know, you're absolutely right about that, Preet. Um, I, I think there is a real merit to simplicity um, because we are trying this case to the American people as we're trying it to the senators. Uh, when we considered what articles to bring in the last impeachment, uh, you know, there were many who wanted um, a much larger set of articles that dealt with violations of the Emoluments Clause, that dealt with obstruction of justice. And we certainly could have done that, but it would have been a much more complicated trial. And we're not dealing with a traditional jury. We're not dealing with a traditional burden of proof. And I think there is a a great merit to um, bringing the strongest case you have, um, making it as crystal clear as you can. It is certainly not the case that if you had two articles with one based on the president's Georgia misconduct and a separate, separate one based on the insurrection, it is certainly not the case that you're going to get senators to distinguish between the two. I just don't think that uh, a senator is going to say, I think it's constitutional to try the president after he's out of office on one article, but not on two, or on two, but not one, um, or actually get into the differential of proof on each article. Uh, That gives the Senate uh, probably far more credit uh, than we can because it is a political body. We would expect that of a jury in a criminal trial. We'd hope for that in a jury with a criminal trial. But here we are dealing with a very different animal. And so I think the desire to keep it simple and keep it strong, uh, really uh, militated in favor of a single article. So I, I think that was the right, the right call. Yeah, I think streamline makes, makes sense. And also there was a matter of timing. Here's another question I've gotten 
uh, I don't know what your reaction will be to it. And that is, why a whole new team of house managers? And people have said, why can't we have Chairman Schiff back for the second go around? You know, I think that this is really not, this trial is not an extension of the first trial. This is a brand new offense uh, and a brand new case. Uh, And I think it makes sense to have a brand new team presenting it. Uh, And I think the speaker chose just the right person in Jamie Raskin, uh, who is a brilliant constitutional lawyer, uh, to lead the case, uh, particularly where a constitutional issue is front and center, and picked a wonderfully uh, talented group of managers that reflect the diversity of the country. Uh, So I think it helps, uh, you know, frankly, uh, make the case from the very beginning that this is a different case. This is a different uh, and even more severe offense against the United States. So I, I appreciate the the question, but I think uh, the speaker made exactly the right decision. Although although you could still have those new managers and have Dan Goldman again, and then you'd have the best of both worlds. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> Dan, instead of talking to me, do you wish you were in D.C. Uh, helping prepare for this trial? Uh, I do not. I, I'm happy to uh, be on the sidelines this May time. May I remind was, you that you were, you were under podcast oath? Yes. <laughs> no, I, that was the, the impeachment process uh, kept me away from, from my family for about five months. So I'm just I, one uh, time. I'm happy. Once yeah, is enough one, for you. One and done. And it's a great, you know, the staff, Barry Burke, who pre, you and I know very well, yeah, um, yeah. is a, a fabulous criminal defense lawyer here in, in New York City, is uh, is leading the staff. And, and Barry and, and I worked very closely last time around. So they're in really good hands. Compared to the culpability of Donald Trump, where do each of you place Senator Josh Hawley and Senator Ted Cruz on that spectrum? Well, I have to tell you that uh, this has been one of the most difficult things uh, for those of us in Congress to wrestle with, uh, which is the fact that uh, so many of our colleagues uh, played a vital and destructive role in this uh, insurrection, um, in propagating the big lie uh, well before the insurrection took place. And there's no escaping their own culpability. I mean, even after the uh, the Capitol had been attacked, uh, even while there was still literally blood on the ground, we went back into session and they were picking up right where they left off as if nothing had happened. You know, pre, when I watched uh, footage of uh, people uh, costing members of Congress as they were flying home after that insurrection, people who had participated in that insurrection and were uh, heckling uh, members on the plane and in airports, um, you could see that these people were true believers. Um, they believe the big lie. Um, the people I serve with in Congress, they know it's a big lie. And they were content to push it out anyway because it was uh, politically advantageous. It was uh, consistent with their ambition. And uh, in a way, that's that's just, if not more, disturbing because uh, they were doing it so willfully. So there is a lot of culpability uh, to go around uh, in the Congress of the United States with what the president did among these members that uh, helped egg on this crowd and then participated shamefully in seeking to overturn the results in Congress. And, And we're having a vigorous debate within the Democratic caucus in the House about what should be done about it, um, about some of the ringleaders uh, in the House. Uh, And I know they're debating the same thing in the Senate. What should be the repercussions? Uh, What do we do about members who continue to want to bring guns on the House floor or 
continue to propagate lies about the election or about the Parkland shooting or uh, God knows what else. As the speaker put it so painfully and pointedly, we have to deal with an enemy within and colleagues who have been encouraging a violence on other members of Congress. Uh, and we just uh, we haven't resolved that yet. We're, we're really trying to come to grips with it. So how does that play out? You know, in my time in the Senate working for Senator Schumer, there were, there were many senators he disagreed with, but there was no member with whom he would not co-sponsor a bill if he agreed with the legislation. And he was a big fan of, as are most members of bipartisanship when it's possible. There was a back and forth between Ted Cruz on social media and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about uh, dealing with a, with a particular issue that's come up recently. And she said, no, thanks. I'll work with some other Republican. Do you, Congressman, uh, have you ever drawn a line before about who you would work with based on something unrelated to the legislation? And would you also consider drawing a line and literally not work together with a member of Congress who you think was guilty of inciting insurrection or causing uh, and, and abetting violence at the Capitol? Uh, pretty good question. I, I mean, there are uh, certainly members after this experience that I really want nothing to do with. Um, now, uh, I also have to uh, figure out very pragmatically, um, a majority of the Republican members on the Intelligence Committee voted to decertify the results even after the failed insurrection. What do I do about that? You know, I need to get the work done of the Intelligence Committee. Um, Devin Nunes is the ranking member of that committee. Uh, there is a lot of work that we must do to uh, set the funding levels for the intelligence agencies, make sure they're observing uh, the law and privacy and civil liberties. Do I not work with him? I have to work with him. But there are still others uh, who I don't have to work with. And I don't want to work with uh, after this experience. And, you know, I guess I'm fortunate that there are such a large membership in the House that uh, there are plenty um, less culpably involved uh, in this uh, insurrection that I can work with. But, but when you're dealing in close quarters, as we are in the Intel Committee, uh, it becomes very challenging. Uh, and, uh, and I wish there was a bright line I could draw, but the reality is I need to get the work of the committee done. Um, I'm going to try to uh, work with the Republicans on my committee because there's just no alternative. And the, the work that we're doing is too important, but it's going to be difficult. Dan, if, if we could talk about your view of how the FBI and other authorities have been investigating, you know, the actual mob, the rioters, the people who went into the Capitol, the people who engaged in violence, what's your reaction to how slowly it's going or quickly it's going, the pace the nature of the charges. What do you think? I think it is just a massive, massive undertaking that you know has actually moved rather quickly from my experience in criminal investigations. My fear is actually that it moves too quickly. Can I just pa that, can we just pause on that for a second? And I mean, I, it sounds like you're talking about you know accelerating activity that took place some days after the event. So can we break it down this way first? With respect to what happened on the day of the event and in the two or three days after, there were almost no arrests. There was almost no basis to think that there was a lot of investigative activity. All these people that are now being investigated went back to where they came from. And now videos are being looked at to try to identify those folks. So do, do you distinguish between the immediate period and the later period? 
Yes, I, I and and I think that's a very good point. Um, I, I do. I was surprised that there was not more round the clock activity immediately following. I mean, we saw in very we saw video in various hotels of all of these protesters just hanging out in hotel lobbies the night of uh, January sixth after the whole thing happened, and and that was that was very odd to see. I think, though, that the, the broader investigation is massive, and I, I think that it should go far beyond trespassing or unlawful entry. Um, you know, it is a federal crime to impair, impede, or delay a, you know, an official action or official process of Congress. I can't remember the exact language, but, I mean, there, there are more serious crimes, not to mention seditious conspiracy, and so there, it's going to require a lot of effort to comb social media, to interview witnesses. And, and I do think at some point it's going to have to go beyond just the insurrectionists and, and also into the organizers of the event, uh, the organizers of the mob insurrection, and uh, those people who may still be in Congress or who might have tried to assist with tweets or with uh, scouting, you know, the geographic landscape of, of the Capitol and other areas of Congress, which apparently a lot of these folks had. This is going to be a months long undertaking. But I do agree, you need, as always, as you know better than I, you need to remove the dangerous people from the streets initially and then conduct... In real time. <laughs> In real time. Yeah, exactly. Do you think, do you think um, Chairman that Congress also needs to undertake a serious and, you know, beyond this impeachment proceeding, that Congress needs to undertake a serious and broad-based lengthy investigation of the events that led up to January 6th? Without a doubt. And indeed, uh, in our committee, uh, working with other committees, we've already begun. I'm particularly focused on the intelligence issues. That is, what intelligence did we have prior to January 6th of who was coming to this and the potential for violence, was that intelligence shared? Um, if it was shared, was it? why wasn't it acted upon? Uh, where was the breakdown? But also, uh, you know, more broadly, we have been pushing the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security for some time to place a greater priority on the danger of domestic terrorism from these white nationalists. And, and you know, one of the issues that uh, I took up with the agencies recently that document that was released uh, just about a week ago, that National Threat Assessment document, it basically warned of domestic violence uh, from those who were upset over the election, those upset over COVID uh, restrictions, and those upset about police violence. Uh, and when I read those three very different categories lumped together, I have to say it made me wonder, um, are we seeing the same kind of problem that we have seen for the last four years uh, with the politicization of intelligence around Russia, where, you know, the Trump appointees were so determined to bury anything critical of Russia that if they were going to be public about the, what Russia was doing to interfere in the 2020 election, they had to throw in China and Iran and Venezuela uh, and others just to obscure the, the actor who was posing the greatest threat to our elections. Is that happening with uh, this scourge of white nationalist domestic terror? And, uh, and so 
I think we have to look into those issues uh, as well as the what went wrong January 6th. And, you know, frankly, and this is maybe not the subject of investigation, but a lot of uh, soul searching we need to do. We came really close to losing our democracy. Donald Trump came very close to succeeding. And I don't mean on January 6th, but had a few more local elected officials not been willing to do their job with integrity, uh, had a few more statewide elected officials like the Georgia Secretary of State not been willing to stand their ground, had a few judges not um, follow the facts and the law, we could be in a really different place as a country. And, and of course, had millions of people not braved a pandemic uh, and determined efforts to disenfranchise them and persisted in voting, we would be in a really different place as a country. And, and I think we have to appreciate in, with the biggest lens possible how close we came to losing our democracy and how much we needed to do to safeguard it going forward. Dan, can I ask you this question? Suppose at the Senate trial there's an acquittal and the Department of Justice has to at least consider looking at the events leading up to January 6th as it relates to Donald Trump. Do you think the fact of an acquittal bears or should bear on a decision with respect to the Department of Justice looking at potential violations of statutes, the insurrection statute or seditious conspiracy as they may pertain to Donald Trump, the former president? Well, without opining on any views about, you know, whether there should be a criminal investigation or not related to, to Donald Trump, I don't think that the Senate trial uh, should have anything to do with what occurs in the Department of Justice. That decision should be made entirely separately for the reasons that we discussed. Impeachment and the Senate trial is a completely different animal than what occurs in a court of law and a criminal investigation. And so there's no formal double jeopardy, obviously. No, of course not. And, and the fact that the senators made a political calculus, perhaps based on incorrect interpretation of the law, uh, which, you know, I think the Department of Justice would probably view that question differently than the 45 who seem to say that you, it's unconstitutional to vote to have a Senate trial after someone is, has left office. It won't be a question for them, but it's a completely different animal that has no bearing on what the Department of Justice does. Can I ask you, Congressman, about one of your colleagues? The number three Republican in the House, Liz Cheney, voted in favor of impeachment, made a strong statement. She's about as conservative as they come, I believe. What we've watched over the course of the last several weeks uh, certainly tells us how fragile our system is. And certainly, you know, as we all watched yesterday, the peaceful transition of power uh, that's really at the heart of our republic, um, all of us ha have an obligation uh, to the Constitution, an obligation to do what, uh, what we believe is right, what our oath compels us to do, that, that is above, above politics, above partisanship. How do you feel about the action she took, whether she deserves any credit or not. And are you surprised at all by the reaction against her, by other colleagues in the Republican caucus, including Matt Gates? You know, I, I have been quoting uh, for the last four years, uh, Robert Carroll, and I hope he said this because otherwise I've given him credit, way too much credit. Um, <laughs> but I've been quoting him for something he wrote that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. And over the last four years, We've seen what power reveals about a lot of people. Um, we've seen a very different Bill Barr uh, under this president than we saw under George Herbert Walker Bush. I think 
the power that Bill Barr was given by Donald Trump revealed just how craven uh, an individual he turned out to be and what he was willing to do to pervert the independence of the Justice Department. But even Bill Barr reached a point where he could go no further. I don't give him a lot of credit for that because, frankly, he was willing to travel down that road a great distance. And others who have jumped ship like the Betsy DeVosses and the Mick Mulvaney's at the last moment were trying to save their own reputations, uh, not not the Republic. Members of the Congress, you know, very much the same. Um, members of Congress campaigned for Donald Trump. They wanted four more years of this man, knowing that he was lying to the country about the election, uh, knowing the damage that he had wrought. But some members of Congress, uh, you know, uh, certainly 10 of them, decided after the insurrection that they could go no farther. And I'm grateful that they didn't go further uh, in exonerating this this dangerous president. But they went a very long distance uh, down the road to ruin. So, uh, you know, I I think that uh, each of the members uh, is in a uniquely uh, different place in terms of their culpability. You've got the Matt Gateses who are still out there now unapologetically and and uh, and thrilled to be the most ardent defender of this uh, amoral, destructive person. Mr. Chairman, Adam Schiff, Dan Goldman, thank you for coming on the show again. And, and as always, thank you for your service. Thank you, Preet. Great to join you. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. My conversation with Dan Goldman and Adam Schiff continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week talking about something very sad and tragic that happened. And in the din of all the news about impeachment and the new administration and everything else, I wanted to make sure it didn't get lost in the noise. At around 6 a.m. on Tuesday morning, two FBI special agents were killed and three were injured in a shootout in Sunrise, Florida. What were they doing? They were executing a federal court-ordered search warrant. That warrant was in connection with an investigation of child pornography. And the man under investigation for violent crimes against children had reportedly barricaded himself inside the complex and was later found dead. Authorities believe the man killed himself before the agents could get to him. I want to recognize the sacrifice and service of the two FBI special agents who died, Daniel Alfin and Laura Schwarzenberger. Agent Schwarzenberger was 43 years old, a mother of two from Colorado, and had been with the FBI since 2005. She spent time working on the Innocent Images National Initiative, part of the FBI's cybercrimes program, which was established to fight the spread of child sexual abuse images online. Special Agent Alfin was 36 years old, a father of one from New York, and had been a special agent since 2009. He had been assigned to the Miami Child Exploitation Task Force. He played a key role in the 2015 arrest of a man who ran what the Bureau called the world's largest child pornography website. Both of these brave agents dedicated their lives to protecting children from abuse and died in the line of duty on Tuesday doing just that. Tuesday's shooting was one of the worst in FBI history, and it was the first time since 2008 that FBI special agents were fatally shot in the line of duty. As Josh Campbell, a former FBI agent, wrote on Twitter in the wake of the news, quote, I never knew the FBI heroes killed today while investigating crimes against children, but damn, my phone has been blowing up with messages from those who knew them. Their work was focused on protecting the most vulnerable among us, 
America's kids. May their memory be a blessing. End quote. President Biden had this to say, quote, my heart aches for the families. They put their lives on the line, and it's a hell of a price to pay. End quote. I found the news particularly hard to digest and think about on Tuesday evening, as I was reading about these two special agents who had died in the line of duty at the same time that Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick was being honored in the rotunda of the Capitol. Multiple law enforcement agents just doing their jobs, killed in the line of duty, and I think it's important to remember their work, their sacrifice, and to honor them. My deepest condolences to the families. Thank you for your service. May you rest in peace. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Dan Goldman and Adam Schiff. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 247 7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.